You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, and this morning we're looking together at chapter 3. You're going to find this on page 775 of the Pew Bible. We're going to focus our attention on verses 3 and 4, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 just to provide context. Jonah chapter 3, we'll be reading verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The prophet Jonah has been duly chastised for his willful disobedience. He knew God was merciful and gracious. He knew that he would likely spare the Ninevites. And Jonah, quite frankly, hated the Assyrian people. They were long-standing enemies of Israel. So initially, he defied the Almighty, ran from his duty, and headed for Tarshish. And God disciplined his wayward prophet in one of the most memorable of ways. A great fish swallowed Jonah, who then quickly turned from his rebellion. I don't blame him. His prayer in chapter 2 is evidence, I believe, of a humbled man and a penitent soul. God recommissioned Jonah to preach the word in the great city of Nineveh. And so now we find the prophet ready and willing to fulfill his duty as God's ambassador. And the Lord's discipline was effective. It was effective as it always is in the lives of his children. Indeed, he disciplines the one he loves, doesn't he? He pursues the objects of his affection. We find, I think, hints of this in the story of Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman. She highlighted the importance of the location of public worship. Our fathers, she said, worshiped on this mountain. But you say, Jesus, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And our Lord Jesus told her that soon the place of public worship won't matter. He said the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then he said, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So apparently... Such worshipers are rare. They are far and few between. 
And the father's seeking them implies his making them such. He pursues them. He draws them to Christ. He regenerates them by his spirit. And that kind of pursuit is characteristic of our God in saving his people. Because Paul says, and you know this verse, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. So if the Father does not pursue the elect, there will be no worshipers. But he will have on earth a witness to bear testimony to his name. And now we don't know if Jonah was a believer before the great fish, but I think he certainly was now. And God had pursued him and brought him into conformity with his sovereign will. And it's an amazing story that highlights the obedient nature of true repentance, doesn't it? That is to say, it involves the turning from sin and the consequent turning toward Christ. We confessed that a moment ago. And the fruit of repentance, what it leads to, is sincere obedience, not perfect obedience, but sincere obedience of which Jonah's is an example. Don't we see this in his response to God's command to preach in Nineveh? It says, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And herein lies the spiritual fruit of which sincere repentance Sincere repentance is indicative of a chastised child of God. He had been to hell and back, so to speak. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, he said. Out of the belly of hell, I cried. And God answered his prayer, delivered him from the fish, set him back on his course, because something inside Jonah had changed. He had come face to face with death. And it was a death that he richly deserved, but one from which he had been saved by God's mercy. And so now, humbled and thankful, Jonah was ready to obey the word of the Lord. Wouldn't you say with me that that is an Old Testament illustration of Paul's New Testament exhortation? Listen to what the apostle said. Present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You know, Jonah shows the power of Christ's resurrection in the life of a believer. Granted, Jonah lived long before Jesus, we know that. But the efficacy of the resurrection of Christ reached back into history. Let me give you an A theological statement, the eschatological power of the messianic age is not bound by time. That's an expensive phrase that just simply means the resurrection affects all of history. Jesus rose from the dead by the power of an indestructible life, and that most important of all events impacts the whole of human history, before him and after him. And it makes a significant difference in the life of each believer. I think what John calls the first resurrection in Revelation 20 refers to the work of regeneration, brought from death to life. And that first resurrection conforms to the resurrection of Christ. 
Our standards describe it, as we confessed, as dying to sin and rising to newness of life. I believe that's what was at work in Jonah's outward transformation. He's now ready, by God's grace, to give himself to the work of the Lord. There's no reluctance here. He doesn't need to be urged. There's no stern measures. It says Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. And as the record indicates, it was done according to the word of the Lord. No more objections. He didn't justify his sin by saying those Ninevites are evil. He'd been chastened, severely disciplined, and was ready to submit. So without grumbling or complaining, he arose and went to Nineveh. And perhaps he still didn't fully understand the mission. After all, these weren't Israelites. Let's face it, they were Gentile dogs, strangers to the covenant of promise. (laughs) Why was a prophet of Israel being sent to these dogs? But he was willing to obey the word of the Lord simply because it was the Lord's. And it is a beautiful illustration of what Peter calls repentance that leads to life. In other words, it is a believer's sincere repentance that leads to eternal life. Jonah had been pursued and humbled and corrected, which resulted in his sincere obedience. And he stopped running away. He confessed his sin. He put himself in the sailor's hands. Throw me overboard. And of course, in doing so, he was submitting himself to the providence of God. And in the belly of that great fish, he cried for mercy and God was willing to extend it. Ha! And his life was spared, and his heart was changed. His perspective was altered, his will was renewed. And of course, outward reformation is not surefire proof of true repentance. We know that. There are all kinds of people who find ways to curb their sinful and destructive behavior. You can go to many 12-step programs to do that. But that is mere behavior modification. It doesn't flow from grace. The heart isn't changed. The sin is not rooted out. It's just expressed in different ways now. So outward reformation does not guarantee true repentance. But listen, one's repentance is never true if it lacks outward reformation. Does that make sense? By definition, repentance is turning away from sin and turning toward God. God gave not only the means of leading Jonah to repentance, the belly of the fish, he also gave Jonah the grace of repentance itself. In whomever the Spirit dwells, he first convinces them and then he converts them. He convinces them of sin. He produces sorrow for that sin deep in the soul. And as the sinner seeks God's mercy in Christ, he finds it and is converted. That's a miracle of grace. And as the Bible puts it, his repentance, if true, leads to eternal life. The true penitent is forgiven of his sins. He's restored to God's favor 
And God promises to grant a pardon and to fill him with his Holy Spirit. And so all of this is a gift. It's the Spirit who produces this within the soul. He takes away that heart of stone. And he gives us a heart of flesh. We've seen these professions of faith lately of these young people. A profession that is an outward expression of a change of heart. This repentance is a gift. He causes us to walk in God's statutes. He causes us to try to obey his rules. We don't do it simply because we have to. Now we do it because we want to. It's an imperfect obedience, yes, but it's a sincere obedience. It flows out of a humble heart. As the psalmist puts it, before I was afflicted, I went astray, wandering sheep. But now, I keep your word. And I think such obedience is imperfect because no one is able to obey perfectly in this life. You and I both know that by experience. We transgress God's law either inwardly or outwardly each and every day. It's such a frustration, isn't it? Through the process of sanctification, thankfully, our outward conduct gradually improves. We can see that in one another. The sincere Christian will experience progress in the growth of virtue. Sometimes we'll experience major breakthroughs. Oh, I saw the truth. I stopped doing that. More often, small advancements. I'm not quite as irritable as I was last year. Either way, there is progress in growing more Christ-like over time. That's sanctification. And at the same time, in the fight with sin, we increasingly subdue those wicked habits, don't we? It's a struggle. Those remnants of sin sometimes prevail, but it's progress. Not only sins of commission diminish, but sins of omission begin to decrease. And we see ourselves acting more and more like the people of God. I see it in here. I see it among you. You see it with your spouses and your children and your friends. We see each other becoming more Christ-like. That's encouraging. Inwardly, the Spirit wages war with our flesh and progressively purifies our hearts. And that is where the deepest work of sanctification is especially needed, inwardly, in the heart. And you and I know that not a day goes by in which we do not sin with our minds. Selfish thoughts. Proud, unloving, unclean thoughts swirling around within the mind. That's why repentance is not a one and done. It's daily, as long as you and I draw breath in our lungs every single day. Luther said it was a lifestyle. Because it's so easy to rely on outward conduct, isn't it? To overlook the inward conformity. That was characteristic of the Pharisees who concerned themselves only with outward piety. But inwardly, their hearts were dark, dirty, and thoroughly wicked. 
So Jesus comes along and he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. Can, can you imagine, and in my single days, I probably did this, but can you imagine washing only the outside of the bowl and leaving the inside dirty? I wouldn't want to eat anything out of a dirty bowl, neither would you. It's gross. The religion of the Pharisees was nothing more than outward moral decency. They avoided the outward sins. They avoided the scandalous sins while they indulged their wicked hearts. They were more concerned with their reputation among men than with their standing before God. And so Jesus says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And I think in our Lord's words, we find a valuable lesson for us to consider very carefully. It's so easy for you and I to equate morality and civility with Christianity. We dress nice. Nothing wrong with dressing nice. We practice good grooming. We usually avoid the noticeable sins, right? And we begin feeling good about our decency, tempted to look down upon others who were not quite so decent. You know, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. And of course, as we know, what the tax collector had done was horrible. He had cheated his fellow Jews. He'd been employed by the Roman Empire. He extorted money from those in his own nation. By contrast, the Pharisee, had done nothing wrong outwardly. The tax collector knew his guilt. He was ashamed of himself. He longed for mercy, but the Pharisee had no idea of the depth of his own depravity. Do you see? Christianity, it's not about what we can do in keeping the law of God. It's all about what Christ has done in accomplishing salvation for sinners. That's Christianity. We all need mercy. We're all like that tax collector, aren't we? We're all undeserving. And I believe the prophet Jonah had a lot to learn about the mercy and grace of Yahweh. Jonah was a work in progress, just like you and me. He'd been humbled for his disobedience, but he still had much to learn about God's love for lost sinners. He loves them, those whom he's chosen. And for reasons known only to him, the Lord wished to save that generation of Ninevites. Like it or not, Jonah was going to be the herald. And God's mercy is truly rich. So we find in verse 4 how Jonah fulfilled his duty as God's herald. And you can see that the Lord cared about that great city. I don't know why he did, but he did. And I think he loved that great city because some of his children were there in Nineveh. Christ would die for them. Jonah would be the instrument to prepare them. 
And so it says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So once he arrived in Nineveh, after a journey of 900 miles on foot, he got to work. He began to proclaim the sovereign's message, calling them to repentance. And my hunch, it's totally speculative, is that Jonah felt rather small. One man against a vast metropolis, like a needle in a haystack, here's Jonah trudging through Vanity Fair, preaching a message of repentance. And that verb overthrown, doesn't it recall the sudden overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah? Same word. In that case, in Sodom and Gomorrah, it was only a matter of hours before God rained fire and brimstone upon them. In this case, God was willing to wait 40 days for the Ninevites to repent. And so it was a much longer reprieve, allowing for the word and spirit to do their work, and yet it was only 40 days. That was the extent of God's patience with the Ninevites. The measure of their iniquity apparently was almost full. He would wait a little more than a month And if they refused to repent, judgment would be meted out, and he'd bring the hammer down. But he was allowing time for repentance, giving room for the faith to develop, and it was a mercy for him to wait patiently for 40 days. But only 40 days. And I think you and I need to learn the lesson of Nineveh. There is a time when God's patience runs out. We don't have the luxury of knowing precisely how much time we've been given. They were given 40 days. We're told to be ready at any given moment. God could let the sickle swing and our time on earth could be brought to an end. So how then shall we live? How important is it today to trust in Jesus Christ? Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, the whole universe is going to be burned up. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what kind of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And yet you and I both know that there are so many who live as if these ultimate concerns are of no consequence. There's a Latin Latin poet, I don't know his name, but he said it this way. We should be alarmed if we were sure not to live a month, and yet we are careless, though we are not sure to live a day. The Ninevites had 40 days. You and I may not have 40 minutes. We don't know. (laughs) I remember one time at the beginning of worship, I don't know, it was Danny or Sam came walking up the side aisle. There's a gas leak in this church. We need to get out of here right now. Months later, Jeremy Mantell, who worked on it, told me this church shouldn't be here. It should have exploded. We don't know. Solomon highlighted the utter vanity of the world and everything in it in Ecclesiastes. You know that story. And it shows that many start out with expectations of great things from the world, but in time they find that this world gives no true satisfaction to the soul. You can't find it here. 
There are many millionaires, you've probably heard them, who have confessed that they would give all their money if they could only find true happiness. And so Solomon says, remember your creator before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Who is this creator but Jesus Christ himself? All things were made through him. So Solomon points to the day of death when things snap and break and shatter. When a great change takes place and death fixes us in an unchangeable state and we depart this world and all of its comforts and we're gone for good. That's it. We will have entered our eternal habitation and all that we've left behind, hopefully is a good memory, and sorrow. And that's why it's a very serious thing to die. We should prepare for it. Let's learn from this that the door of salvation remains open for a season. Jesus said to the crowd, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, let lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And you know something? Jesus spoke those things not only for the Jews, but for the whole church. The time allotted for us to believe and embrace Christ is extremely short. If you think about history, the free offer of salvation, and it is free, The free offer of salvation in Christ is given and the opportunities provided. And such an amazing offer is a clear demonstration of God's mercy and grace. That's amazingly merciful. But we find here that that door of salvation in Jesus will not remain open forever. As Jonah's preaching implied, there is a limit to how long God will wait. Limited is the time for access to the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, where sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. So either providence will withdraw the offer or death will remove the sinner. Whichever the case may be, at that point, the way to heaven will then be forever barred, and then nothing will remain but the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. So while you and I have the light, and the light is everywhere, believe in the light and become sons of light. Think of the light we have. Bibles, books, worship services, Sunday school, apps, podcasts. So let's make good use of these blessings and rejoice in the Savior of the world while we can. And finally, let's take note of God's deep concern for the souls of unworthy sinners. I would be remiss if I didn't bring that up. God's deep concern for the souls of unworthy sinners. As we've said so many times, Nineveh was a wicked and pagan metropolis, and I doubt anybody at that time would have seen them as likely converts. I wouldn't have. 
And Jonah, for his part, did everything he could to make sure they would not be saved. But God loves the unlovable. He pursues the despicable. He redeems the wicked. I want you to think with me about the death of Jesus as those two criminals were crucified with him and those soldiers nailed him with one criminal on his right and the other criminal on his left. And the same soldiers would mock him and make fun of him as king of the Jews. So here was Jesus hanging there, bleeding, dying, beaten, bruised, reviled in reproach, treated with scorn and contempt. And what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I'll be honest with you, because I'm a sinner vindictive like the rest of us. If that would have been me, I would have said, Father, destroy them, consume them in your wrath. But Jesus petitioned his Father on their behalf, and those soldiers... They'll be in heaven. Because never once did Jesus offer a prayer that his father refused to answer. That prayer will be answered. And their sins have been forgiven by his shed blood, and like the Ninevites, they were purchased by his death. Doesn't that help illustrate the love of God for sinners and illustrate his mercy? If he forgave his own persecutors and murderers, is anyone beyond reach? I don't think so. May that encourage God's people today as we rejoice in the salvation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you. As a God who is rich in mercy and abounding in grace, oftentimes we don't understand it. It's almost too good for, for us to believe to be true. And yet you are so far beyond us. We thank you that though we can't comprehend you, we can apprehend you by faith in Jesus Christ. And we ask now that the Spirit would assist us as we sing your praise because you are worthy and we are grateful. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.